Uh, election year theology. Now I'll tell you, I'm not going to tell you, uh, I hope I don't disappoint you, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm not going to talk about Trump or Clinton. That's not what this is about. I want to take our political thinking and put it in a context, a theological context, a biblical context. And then you can sort of uh, sort through and deal with your political points of view in the light of that context. And I do think the New Testament really gives us a way of looking at the political, social realities that we face. And I, for one, feel like we're going back to the future. We're kind of in the 21st century, but increasingly, the way the New Testament church faced culture is becoming more and more relevant to us. And so we have, in a way, a harmony of political impact around the world, global Christians, whether you're in China or whether you're in Birmingham, we are beginning to look at society and culture in similar ways in order to live for Christ. First Peter is going to be our text for these six weeks. And uh, I think First Peter is a is not a very well uh, remembered or understood or examined New Testament epistle, but it's kind of absolutely crucial for this Christ for culture understanding. And in that, in Peter's letter to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, I think we have a wonderful example of how to deal with, with culture. So I'm wanting us to sort of immerse ourselves in that epistle uh, and think about it for the next six weeks together. As we pray through what has been, you know, a very negative and difficult and uh, disconcerting election cycle from wherever you're coming from, I think. Uh, it's fair to say that. And I want us just as Christians to, I guess, bottom line, I... I I would like us to come to some sort of peace and resting in what God has done for us. And in a way, that the term that theologians use is eschatological. A view from the end times. I believe we're living in those end times. I believe those end times began when Jesus rose from the dead. Um, we live with a certain eschatological perspective on life where temporal life and temporal hope is, is catapulted into eternal life and eternal hope. And we understand a different perspective toward, toward life. Last, uh, a week ago Saturday, um, last weekend, Virginia and I uh, were in New York City and we visited the 9-11 the memorial. Uh, I was there to preach at Central Press, the church that we were involved in for about four years before uh, coming here at the Advent. And uh, in addition to teaching here at Beeson Divinity School, and 
it was really the first time I'd gotten up close to the memorial and um, next to the names and uh, and taking pictures. And uh, we walked from the Brooklyn Bridge to the memorial, and then we tried to walk home to the Upper East Side. It, um, we finally gave up and got a cab. Um, when you talk to people that were born after 2001, uh, they will often talk in terms of 9-11 changing everything. And in a way, it was this generation's Pearl Harbor, kind of radical alteration of how we perceive the world and how we perceive our security in the world. I would like the Christian to have a different kind of understanding than Pearl Harbor or the 9-11 in bringing about a revolution in perspective and understanding. I chose Psalm 9 uh, to start us as a prayer and we'll read at least the first couple of verses. If you've got your Bible, you may want to follow along. Uh, Psalm 9, hear the word of God. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations, destroyed the wicked, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies, you have uprooted their cities, even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. We call that the prophetic perfect. Um, the psalmist is speaking as if the future has already taken place. God is just and judge and has accomplished everything. The psalms that follow, Psalm 9, 10, 11, 12, that follow are psalms that Life is not very settled. That future has not been accomplished. We are still in the midst of that struggle. But this is the established point of view of the psalmist. The Lord is on his throne. He reigns. It's accomplished. It's as good as done. Now, that's a radical starting point for living life. It is a starting point that would speak to me of security of rest, of peace, of shalom, of an understanding that come what may, hell or high water, my soul, my life, my family, my world is resting in God. I see that kind of peace and hope in the Apostle Peter's uh, statement. I found this interesting. I, uh, I get a meditation every Sunday morning from a friend who uh, helps uh, place MBA students at Georgetown University in Washington. He, after 25 years at Accenture in management, he um, 
does that job at Georgetown. He's an elder at National Presbyterian Church in D.C. And uh, he is talking in today's meditation about 9-11-2001. And then he said this at the end of his meditation. He had already talked about the American flag, what the American flag stood for. And the recovery, you know, of that missing flag you may have seen in the news that ended up in Washington State that was uh, given back to the um, to the memorial and to the museum uh, at Ground Zero. And uh, he says this about uh, the Christian flag, the Christian flag. The Christian flag has a red cross, parentheses, blood that Jesus shed on Calvary. Inside a blue canton, waters of baptism and faithfulness of Jesus, and a white field, Jesus' purity. We don't surrender to evil or fear or idols or dictators. We surrender to the one who surrendered his life for our wrong choices so that we could receive God's forgiveness and grace and get life right. A white flag is linked to surrender, a reference to the biblical description of Jesus' nonviolence and surrender to God. And then he quotes, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Romans 12:1 in the message. And then Eric writes, We experience God's grace amidst our surrender. Indeed, through many dangers, toils, and snares, many of us have just sung that, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. In the midst of all of our political confusion and commotion, I'd suggest to you there's a very real still point, a real place of shalom for the believer. But we do have to grasp that uh, perspective. We have to live that out. It ought to be reflected. One of the things that uh, I was asked why um, this topic and now, and uh, I have just been so upset by how Christians are upset. Um, I'm in various spheres of life uh, and different political points of view. And the vitriolic rhetoric the Christians feel completely justified in expressing, I have found unnerving. Um, The hate... um, On Sunday, this coming Sunday, I'll do a memorial service for Captain Dan Deaton, um, a good brother of mine over many years, uh, was a chaplain to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, traveled the world. Um, We knew him and his wife, Barb, fairly intimately. He had an affair, um, wrestled through those circumstances. His wife refused to divorce him. Um, after 10 years of being AWOL, Dan really came back to the Lord in a very powerful way. And there's been tremendous healing with the three daughters. And you can imagine 
you can just sort of, I could, the, the whole class could just be talking about God's grace in the midst of that. And, uh, and then after Dan came back uh, to the Lord, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And for the last, is it three years, Virginia? About the last three years, um, that process has gone on, and, and uh, he died on August 31st. Um, and uh, this hope, which is an anchor for the soul, sure and firm is the text that Barb has chosen for my message uh, next Sunday. Um, and uh, But I went on Twitter last night because uh, I'm dedicating my next book, which is a pastoral commentary on Hebrews, to Dan. And I wanted to get it right. Um, and I put, in memory of Captain Dan Deaton, and I went on Twitter, and uh, he had some awful things that he said about fighting Muslims, um, about giving them uh, with both hands the middle finger. And he went on with just some real hate. And uh, it's exactly that kind of real ambivalent, worldly perspective on the one hand and a deeply Christian perspective that I find very disconcerting. Yes, you have enemies, but how you respond to your enemy has to be distinctively Christian in the military or not. Um, there's a way of approaching the opposition that we may feel in culture. Uh, Dan just uh, is a beautiful Christian, intense, a tremendous passion for Christ. Uh, but with a political, ideological point of view there that was expressed in ways that, to me, are unbecoming for a, a Christian. Um, you can tell I'm just being completely transparent with you, right? Do you see now issues that are deeper are deeper than choosing Trump or Clinton, and 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 that's what we want to deal with. And I think First Peter is a, a wonderful text for um, for dealing with this. So uh, you can take your study guide or take your uh, Bibles, and let's turn to First Peter. Now, as I've already said, I won't be here next week because we'll be in San Diego, Virginia and I, for this memorial service. And uh, very thankfully, um, I asked Gil, should I just drop the class um, for a week? And Gil said, no, I'm happy to do it. So um, we've already sort of mapped out what portion um, Gil will deal with in, in terms of the passage he will cover is deep obedience. Um, Chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 3, will be next week. But this week, we're looking at the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. And I will read those. They're there on the left column. Listen carefully. This is God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, you see where I'm reading, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithany. That's 300 
thousand square miles. It's a huge area. And this letter was delivered by a person you know from the New Testament, Silas, um, a friend, deep friend to both Paul and Peter. Uh, Sylvanius is a term, is the name that Paul gives to him. Uh, Silas is an abbreviation of the Latinized version of Sylvanius. And Silas hand-delivered First Peter throughout this region. So he traveled... It must have been the mission trip of all mission trips because he traveled thousands of miles both by boat and by foot and by whatever, whatever they were using, camel or uh, donkey or horse, uh, to deliver this to these believers that were like seeds scattered to the wind, the diaspora of the Christian community. Verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. One of the things that we'll want to emphasize is that we, you and I, have a very distinctive identity expressed here, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen according to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, chosen according to the obedience of Jesus Christ, either chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ or chosen because of the obedience of Jesus Christ. It could go either way grammatically. That's an identity. That identity is greater than your southern identity. It is greater than your academic identity. It is greater than your vocational identity. This is the identity by which we are to be known. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Chosen by, according to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Chosen according to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That identity is what forms us. There is nothing higher that you can receive than your baptismal identity. When you are buried with Christ and raised in newness of life, when you are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, this is more important than anything you will achieve. Your life is defined by God's mercy, not by your merit. This is what this church stands for, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we can't do it ourselves, but God in Christ has done it for us. This is our identity. And the question is, well, what can shake you if, if that is your identity? But more. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just rhetoric, but praise. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. Again, building on that identity, a new birth into a living hope, an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that's why this is an eschatological perspective. This being born into a new birth, into a living hope, into an inheritance that cannot spoil, or fade, kept for us until uh, God's power and the coming of salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, 
You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, there's a lot of life that we could put into verse 6. A lot of life, a lot of personal life, a lot of social life, a lot of vocational life, a lot of political life. But for now, all of that is kind of put into a fairly small space. Verse 7, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you turn the page over with me to verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. All that is about the Old Testament. And the prophets were looking forward to the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that's what Peter is tying in that long salvation history drama, he's focused in on that and he's bringing it all the way into the present. Verse 12, and it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So our defining identity is what the Apostle Peter is stressing here. And I'm just this morning stressing the idea that these believers didn't have to leave home to feel like foreigners. They became like migrants, landed immigrants, exiles, foreigners, aliens, outcasts in their homeland. Why? Because of this new identity in Jesus Christ. Overnight, overnight they became something strange to the culture because of Jesus Christ. Now, you may not at all feel strange living in this culture. Interesting. Because we speak now, pretty generally, of, post -Christ, of the post-Christian West. And in a way, we've, we've gone beyond that kind of Christian culture understanding, generally speaking. We live in a culture now that, by and large, we would call secular or pagan, antithetical to fidelity and loyalty to Jesus Christ, to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Post, the post-Christian West. I would add something to the post-Christian West. I would add post-biblical Christianity, where now many who claim to be Christians really don't understand the Bible very much at all. And the Bible is kind of a foreign book. So you've got the post-Christian West and you've got post-biblical Christianity. 
which means increasingly Christians feel like strangers in their homeland. Uh, for a number of years, my parents hosted a Chinese Christian fellowship group that met in our home. I grew up in western New York. Um, my dad, both parents, were involved in education. My dad was a teacher. And uh, my brother got really close to the Chinese Christian community, and one thing led to another, and we began hosting their Bible study Friday night. My parents did. And uh, we could have up to 80 Chinese students in our home on Friday night. We kind of put our home back together again late Friday night. Um, and it was a wonderful outreach that just we kind of, my parents gradually sort of moved into. Uh, I guess so. Pentecost taking place. These Asians from, uh, from Taiwan, from the mainland, from Singapore, from Hong Kong, uh, from all over Asia would come for Friday night, and it was all Chinese-led. We just provided the house and, and food. And, uh, uh, you know, you'd sit at the table with somebody who had never seen a Bible, never even seen a Bible, and uh, because seekers and searchers uh, came to this because of the friendship, because of the fellowship. And uh, we saw many students come to know Jesus Christ. And here are these foreigners coming to you know, the West and getting MAs and PhDs, mainly in the sciences, and uh, then going back home as strangers in their homeland, foreigners in their home turf, coming back now radically different because of Jesus Christ with a, with a very different identity, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen according to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, chosen according to the obedience of Jesus Christ, and giving a new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that is lasting, and they go back into their land and they understood how foreign they were on a different dimension here even in the West because of Jesus Christ. Virginia and I have gone to northern Ghana about six times to train pastors uh, with long-term friendship with uh, a missionary a, a Christian by the name of David Mensa, indigenous to, to Ghana, did his PhD in the same program I did in Toronto and has gone back and wonderful year I mean, they've it's been 30 years they've invested in that ministry and we've gone back in that tribal culture when you go back and you receive Christ immediately everything is different everything is different overnight i mean the taboos and the fetishes and the witchcraft and the occult this is very rural Ghana, uh, a Muslim-dominated region, uh, very tribal, very agrarian. You know, there's no running water. There's nothing like that. There is now, uh, but in many of the villages there isn't at all. Very primitive healthcare, um, a lot of animism, a lot of spiritism, and they come to Jesus Christ, and overnight they know that they belong to a new tribe, a different tribe. 
they're still in their tribe. And sometimes that creates tremendous tension because everything that goes wrong from that point on is blamed on the Christians because they're not participating in the taboos. And they are countering that in a, in a loving, normal, diplomatic, peaceful way. They're just not participating that way. Should we be jealous of their strangerhood? The clarity of their identity? The, um, you know, kind of almost sort of like a black white, black and white kind of distinctiveness about their Christian faith? Where here, you know, the Christian can be almost unidentifiable. Um, maybe you feel like the, the business ethics or the professional ethics of which you're a part in your vocation is, well, it's very compatible to Christian ethics. There's really, there's not much difference there. Um, I mean, really, is there much of a difference between a Christian Alabama fan and a non-Christian Alabama fan? Um, yeah, I mean, aren't they pretty, pretty much the same? Um, I mean, where in other cultures there's this distinctiveness about following Jesus Christ. Is that distinctiveness part of our way of following Christ here? I'll tell you, it certainly is for teenagers, and increasingly so. Our teens, I think, in the public arena or on a secular campus, our 20-somethings, really do experience the distinctiveness of a Christian identity. Maybe more so than us in our 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, and 80s. I do want to lay this down before um, we depart. You'll notice um, on the outline, the very last paragraph, if you turn over the page, and hopefully you, know, you can read this uh, at your leisure before um, Gill's class, but that last paragraph, Alien Alienation and Progressive Conformity, I just uh, I want to try to explain what I mean by that, so that you can can think about it. Um, you may agree, may disagree, whichever is fine. Um, and I'm reading from uh, my book on First Peter. Um, First Peter describes a narrow and vital way between two broad extremes. Both extremes represent popular Christianity. At one extreme, Christendom is a grassroots civil religion that is antithetical to 1 Peter's cruciform strategy of submission and sacrifice. This version identifies more with the American good life than with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. It believes in American exceptionalism and is fiercely loyal to a free market capitalism. Its proponents feel threatened by secular culture 
and feel compelled to vent their anger against liberals who they believe are destroying America. Their resentment and fear run deep. Quote, Bible-believing Christians blame the president and his party for the nation's moral degeneracy and economic failings. But what is particularly pernicious is their slanderous disdain and even their wish for his demise. For a generation of professing Christians, their hate is deep-seated. They wrap the cross in the American flag and cherish the American dream as their one great hope, a hope worth fighting for with the weapons of the world. Now maybe that's a caricature in the ideological description here, but I'm suggesting that that type of person feels deeply alienated in this culture. And therefore, they're grasping for ways and means by which they can get their culture back. And they feel deeply resentful that somebody has taken away from them what they rightly have and had had, have had. That's one extreme. I'm suggesting that First Peter carves a path away from that, distinctive from that, now, here's the other extreme. The other extreme form of Christendom celebrates conformity to the spirit of the times. This liberal version of Christendom identifies with progressive causes such as gay rights, abortion on demand, and radical pluralism. It is knowingly at odds with the New Testament and First Peter's cruciform strategy. Progressive Christendom prides itself on being open-minded and tolerant. It freely diminishes biblical authority on virtually all matters that run counter to the prevailing cultural ethos. That's another extreme. It's interesting, in the Episcopal Church, obviously, we've got both. We have both expressions of a progressive kind of Christendom, and that word progressive is something that has been sort of taken over and grasped, and it's their word, and this kind of conservative Christianity that feels we've lost our culture and we are angry as hell, and we're going to get it back. Now, I'm suggesting to First Peter is really moving between both of those in a radically distinctive way. And that's what we're going to try to discuss and debate, deal with in this class. Um, so this is politics before Republican and Democrat. This is trying to understand a Christian political point of view. Uh, Jacques Ellou, and with this I'll close, Jacques Ellou is a uh, died in 1994, a French sociologist who really became a Christian apologist and philosopher, wrote a lot about technology and propaganda. And he wrote a book entitled The Political Illusion, in which he argues that Christians have to give up the notion that they can change the world through politics. It's not going to happen. 
You're not going to change the world through politics. And he do, he's quick to say, I don't mean to take Christians out of the political realm and the political world. We need that salt and light presence in that political arena. Go for it. But give up the notion that you're going to change the world through political power. The world won't change. The world is the world. It will remain the world. And the Christian distinctive identity, voice, and action is what we want to work on. So in various ways, we're going to address this. Uh, but we've begun with this idea of our identity in Christ that First Peter works out. I'll pray, and if anybody wants to discuss or talk, um, and you're not running off the 11 o'clock service, I'm happy to talk. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you uh, for today, for the life, for the vitality, for the beauty of this congregation, its rootedness in the gospel. We praise you for that, and we pray for perspective. We pray that you would take away from us the edge and the anger um, and in its place, put a Jesus-like strategy of dealing with friends and enemies for your glory and for your praise. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.